Please be seated. Right at the end of the 19th century, a technology race breaks out across Europe and in the United States. In about 1890, there's a heavy push with inventors, creative types, to take the camera and to make that adjustment that we all experience now somewhat unconsciously, to make it so we move from only still images into moving images. The likes of folks like Thomas Edison and his partner, William Dickinson, engage in the process to create a camera that will capture live action humanity existing one with another. It happens in about 1895, and we give Edison and Dickinson the credit for it, mostly just because history belongs to the victor, and the United States ultimately dominates the motion picture industry that begins to be created right about 1895. In 1895, an English inventor films two seconds of footage in an English garden, his own English garden, with his family interacting one with another, and that is the birth of moving pictures. The industry continues to, de to develop in the years to come, and alongside the development of the technology itself, we have an industry, a motion picture industry, that begins to emerge around this invention. Prior to World War I, we see that Europe, primarily Paris, or primarily France and Germany, but also Australia become the leading creative innovators in this new emerging industry. In 1895, just to back up on the timeline, in Paris, France, a French inventor invents the movie experience itself. He captures in motion picture a few snippets of French life he reserves a room and he charges people like you and me entrance to come into that room and watch the moving picture that is projected on the screen. After World War I, the U.S. begins to emerge as the greatest innovator, creative innovator in the industry itself. Almost immediately after the development of the motion picture camera, we see a lot of technological and creative energy going into combining motion picture, color, and sound. Those three things don't really come together until the mid-20s, and at that period of time, we have the very beginning of what American historians call the golden age of Hollywood. 
as Hollywood emerges around the film industry and Los Angeles becomes a creative hub for the globe, we see a lot of effort and energy going into building this new industry. Studios are constructed all across the Los Angeles basin and in the San Fernando Valley. And this becomes like a really dynamic industry for the U.S. in the early 20th century. In the 30s, as movies begin to come together, we see this curious collaboration begin. Although the movie industry began on the East Coast, it migrates very quickly to the West Coast. But in the 30s, the movie industry looks back toward the East Coast and Hollywood and Madison Avenue come together. This collaboration between advertising and marketing and this new emerging industry does early market research looking at what it takes to get human beings to go to the box office, to buy a ticket, and to sit in a theater. And after dozens of tests and research and surveys and interviews, what Hollywood and Madison Avenue discover together is that it takes people like you and me seven times. It takes us seven times to see a movie poster before we walk to the box office and buy a ticket. In this period of time, the movie industry becomes robust in its partnership with Madison Avenue. And what we see historically over the course of these two or three decades is the way that humankind tells stories shifts in a dramatic way away from the way that it's told stories for at least three millennia. It is a dynamic shift that all of us have consciously or unconsciously inherited. We've moved from the big screen to the small screen to the screen in our pockets over the course of the last six decades. It is a huge development in the way that humankind both holds story and tells story. And in this moment, in this collaborative moment between Hollywood and Madison Avenue, we learn something about the human brain that marketing and advertising holds on to until the development of social media. If you were to get in front of your computer right now and you were to Google, how many times do I have to tell someone something in order for them to remember it, what you would find is it seven times. Or what I can tell you at least is that what you would find before social media, it was seven times. So over the course of the development of humanity, 
in this marketing experiment makes it um, clear in the secular area, we see that we need to communicate to each other seven times before our message becomes clear. Now, some of you are probably sitting here going like, yeah, I get a lot of emails from St. John's Episcopal Church. <laughs> I get so many emails from St. John's Episcopal Church that I don't read at least half of them. And then folks come to me and they're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that this Sunday was the big reveal and the family reunion. And I'm like, it's only because we communicated it more than seven times. <laughs> I wonder, I wonder what would happen if we got one of those early movie industry execs in a room with one of those early Madison Avenue advertising marketing folks in the room together with a Hebrew scholar. You see the story that you heard Rob Weed read to you this morning, the first story in our story has seven beats to it. We tend to just let those beats move in and move out of our ears, not paying close attention to what's happening. But when we hear the narrator talk about the creation of earth and sky, of land and sea, of sea life, of land life, and then of humanity, there are these glorious seven beats. They go sky and sea, they go land they go vegetation, which strangely I think is maybe out of order because they go vegetation and then we go sun and moon. I think we would have sun and moon before vegetation, right? Maybe we know that now, right? So we go sun and moon, then we go to sea creatures, then we go to land creatures, and then we go to humanity itself. But the seven beats, the message itself that is meant to be communicated is not the story of creation. It's not exactly how all that we see and experience came to be. The point of the story itself is God's reflective moment after each of those beats. There's this powerful Hebrew word that the story narrates. It says that God steps back at each beat and says, this is tov, this is good. I see that goodness is sown into each beat of creation. At every step, at every dramatic move of the creation of the universe, God steps back to remind us, those of us who listen and experience and live the story, God is reminding us that goodness is sown into every aspect of creation, including at the very end, after God creates humanity, God says that it's not just good, but that it's very good. I sort of wonder, I think that would have gotten circled by my ninth grade English teacher. They would have been like, say, don't say very good, Jimmy. Say exceedingly good. No matter what, no matter what, 
the first story, the first story of our story is meant to remind us that there is nothing you can do or not do, nothing you can say or not say to unwind, to unbraid, to separate creation from goodness, including little old you and little old me. What God wants us to know at the very beginning of the story, and I would argue throughout and in its end, is that we are good. In fact, we and all that we experience are very good. Now, I don't know about you, but I do know about me. And I have this tendency to forget that reality. Perhaps the marketing plan that God founds, that Madison Avenue and the entertainment industry picks up, perhaps it doesn't work as well as we thought. Because no matter how many times you tell me about the goodness that is sown into creation, if I list one way or another, I tend to list to the pessimistic side, at least unconsciously. As I reflect on life, at least in the immediate moment, I reflect on the struggle, on the conflict, on the challenge, on the trial, on the frustration, and on the fear. And over the course of the spring, I've really been trying in my own personal spiritual life, I've really been trying to rectify that reality, to have some sense, to be rededicated to the very beginning of the story, and to have some sense that no matter the challenge I face in life, that my life is in fact good, not just good, but very good. And in order to remind myself of that, I've picked up over the course of the spring two mantras. One I've written to you about. I told you if you read your email, which you know we probably didn't, right? <laughs> A few of you did. I wrote to you that the first mantra that I picked up this spring for my own spiritual development is these are the days. Just a reminder that the time that I have before me and the people in my life and the work that I have to do and the community in which I live is experienced in the beauty of the present moment, which is attached to the beginning of the story. So as I spent the spring on the sidelines of the lacrosse field in the state of Montana, looking at the beauty of the mountains and watching my daughter and all of her colleagues throw the lacrosse ball one to another, hoping to end up on top at the end of the game and at the end of the season, in my mind, I've been telling myself all along, these are the days. As I've moved through tense, sometimes anxious and frustrating staff meetings, at the end of those meetings, when we're seeking to grow closer to one another and to become better collaborators with one another, I have reminded myself, these are the days 
And as I go home after a busy day at work, I fight the tendency to walk upstairs and close the door and just get some solitude to myself. I sit down in the kitchen in the middle of the noise and the chaos that is my house from like 5.30 to 9 o'clock every night, reminding myself that these are the days and that goodness is sown in to each and every aspect of my own privileged, wonderful life. That's the first mantra. The first mantra gave rise to the second. And the second has put me in this beautiful moment, ready to engage summer with a soft and open heart. The second mantra that I've picked up over the course of the spring is at the end of the day. At the end of the day, when I review all of the tapes and I make an accounting of all that I have and all who I'm connected to and all of the beauty that surrounds me, at the end of the day, I am drawn back to that first story so quickly and so easily. I'm able to focus on the reality that all that surrounds me, every single aspect, every creeping creature and every star that shines at night, at the end of the day, it all comes down to goodness, to exceeding goodness in our lives. If you are around this church, over the season of Lent, you know that during that time, we engaged in a relatively weighty practice. The theme, our Lenten theme this year, was surrender. And we all got to take away a white flag on that first Sunday in Lent. And maybe we used it or maybe we stowed it. But I can tell you, in my own spiritual life, Forcing myself into the position of radical acceptance and surrendering places where I really found myself powerless, no ability to change, no opportunity to influence. This place of acceptance led me to this beautiful present moment of these are the days. And these are the days led me to this beautiful moment of at the end of the day, making the story come full circle. And so here we sit on a Sunday when we are going to announce our summer theme. And our summer theme is connected to our Lenten theme. And it's connected to my own spiritual practice of having a sense, reflecting on the goodness in my life, of engaging spiritual practice through mantras that cultivate joy in a powerful and meaningful way for us individually. And so our summer theme at St. John's Episcopal Church, over the course of the entirety of the summer, after the heaviness of Lent, we're saying this will be a summer of smiles. And I'm inviting each of you to join me, to join me in the work of cultivating joy 
in your life of recognizing goodness, the goodness that God has sown into creation that extends all the way to our own hearts and the relationships that we find ourselves in. In order to do that, I'm going to give you all a gift. You know this, right? You're each going to walk away with a present. And what I want this present to do is I want it to remind you over the course of this summer of smiles, I want it to remind you at least twice a day <laughs> of the goodness that is sown into creation that extends out from this, this brilliant story that we have that guides our faith all the way down into our own lives. There are a boatload of toothbrushes here. And they are branded with Summer of Smiles. Just to remind us, those of us who might list toward that pessimistic side, who might find ourselves more closely connected with struggle than we do with compassion or kindness or goodness, this is just meant to remind us of the goodness that extends from the very beginning of the story all the way to the end of the day. Amen. Now please stand as we say together the Nicene Creed. <clears throat> 